Once again, I want to make the announcement that we would request that you refrain from cigarette, cigar, and pipe smoking while the meeting is in process. The smoke gets pretty heavy here in this room, <clears throat> and it's irritating to lots of people. And Everything is just going great. Uh, I want to compliment you on, on being such a, an attentive and punctual audience. I, I couldn't ask for anything any better. We're still following our time schedule, and we're right in line, and every, I, I assume that we probably will stay so. As I mentioned this morning, we deviated a little bit from your printed program, and I know many of you got up early this morning to come here and see the lady who I consider the first lady as far as alcoholism is concerned. Miss Marty Mann is a founder and a consultant from the National Council on Alcoholism. She's an honorary fellow, American Psychiatric Association, a fellow, the American Public Health Association, Society of Public Health Educators, the Royal Society of Health, England, special consultant to the director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Marty Mann has written effectively, lectured extensively throughout the entire world on the disease of alcoholism. She's the author of several books and publications. She's a consultant and gives over 200 lectures every year to medical, psychiatric, educational, religious, social, and other groups, and lectures at the schools of alcoholic studies and universities throughout the country. She's addressed the joint sessions of state legislature in South Carolina, Michigan, Tennessee, Utah, and has given a series of lectures at the Menager Foundation in Topeka, Kansas. Invited by the government of South Africa, Ms. Mann gave the key address at their first national conference on alcoholism and lectured throughout the country. In 1956, she participated in the Third Congress of the International Union for Health and Education of the Public in Rome, Italy. In 1961, she was a guest of national organizations in Australia and New Zealand to lecture and to advise on programs. She was invited to England by the British, to Dublin by the Board of Governors of St. Patrick Hospital, returned to England and Ireland to speak on behalf of the British and Irish National Councils on Alcoholism. She was given the Elizabeth Blackwell Award for Outstanding Service to Mankind in 1963 by Hobart and William Smith Colleges. In 1970, the University of Arizona appointed her lecturer in pharmacolo pharmacological sciences. She has been appointed research associate. In 1972, she gave a paper at the 30th International Congress on Alcoholism and Drug Dependency in Amsterdam. In 1975, she received the honorary degree of Doctor of Human Letters from Adelphi University. Ladies and gentlemen, the first lady in alcoholism, Ms. Marty, Marty Mann. You know, if you were all standing up here where I am, that's all you'd need 
instead of my speech. Just to look around and see. I think the attendance to this meeting is phenomenal. And the reason I think it's phenomenal is because such a large proportion are degreed professional workers in this field or not yet workers in this field, but interested enough to come here to learn. The title of my talk, An Overview of Alcoholism, although I didn't give it as the opening talk because I got the flu yesterday and they told me I couldn't come, and I came anyway, but I couldn't make it that early this morning, and I apologize to all of you, and somebody told me that I'd better explain something. I'm full of antibiotics and it gives you a dry mouth. That is not a scotch and soda. It's ginger ale. I think before we take an overview of alcoholism today, that it wouldn't hurt anybody to take a look at it the way it was when I started. That was in 1944. I'd been sober for five years. All that five years, for reasons many of you know, namely my own sobriety, I had been working with alcoholics. And I had discovered at first hand the terrible problems that existed in doing that. If they were desperately sick in what today we call withdrawal, nobody had that nice a word for it then. They were just coming off drunk. There was no place we could put them. There were no doctors that would come. There were no hospitals that would accept them. And if they needed further help, having dried out cold turkey with some one of us who cared sitting with them, or a group of us, or a relay, of people keeping a 24-hour watch because we knew how dangerous it was and we knew that there was too good, great a chance of losing many of these people if we weren't there and if we couldn't do all that we could. But remember, I'm not talking about doctors. I'm talking about laymen, mostly men, because that far back there were very, very few women who had attained sobriety. We couldn't reach them. They were, they actually, they are still the most hidden group in this field. But in those days, they were totally and completely hidden and protected because everybody around them was ashamed to admit that there was such a thing in their own family or in their own home. And so they, quote, protected unquote, not realizing, I'm sure, that that protection was actually preventing them from getting the help they so desperately needed. So it was a man's world, and not a very big one, and we did what we could. But as the years passed, and I saw no change in this, and much too slow a group, a growth 
among the people who cared and were trying to do an immense job, very few people, it seemed to me that there had to be some kind of organization that could reach the public, because that's where the alcoholics were. They were scattered among the public. We didn't know exactly where. There wasn't just one state we could go to and find them all. There wasn't just one profession we could go to and find them all. Or one kind of living that we could invade, you might say, and find them all. They were everywhere. But they belonged nowhere. Nobody cared. Some of this, among some of these people, I truly believe, came from ignorance. I think I must remind you that in 1944, alcoholism was a dirty word. You never saw it in print. You never heard a doctor use it. You never heard anybody else use it. Among those few that knew the word and knew what it meant, well, they kept quiet. Sometimes if they didn't keep quiet, they didn't keep their jobs. Or they didn't keep their husbands if they were these protected women. They stopped protecting them. And most of the women that sought help were women who no longer had a husband or children. They had long since walked out. It's always been a curious thing to me that men who come for help usually have a family. Women who come for help have usually lost their family. And that is still true today. Part of the difficulty in trying to help an alcoholic back then was the fact that you couldn't get family participation or family cooperation. The families were totally ignorant and extremely biased against the alcoholic member of their family. They weren't open to learning. They didn't want to learn. They didn't even want to talk about it. Nor did they want to read about it. That ignorance, I think, largely came out of fear, or certainly to a heavy extent. And where you have an atmosphere of fear leading to ignorance, it's not very easy to get cooperation. And it's not very easy to put the facts across that those people need to know and ought to know, the kind of facts that would change their attitudes. Actually, I would say that the main objective of the original council, which wasn't called that then, we called it precisely what it was supposed to do, it was called the National Committee for Education on Alcoholism. And the only reason we got started at all, the National Committee consisted of me and a secretary and a board of nine people, and those people were the scientists at Yale to whom I had gone for scientific backing because my own sponsor, whose name is now speakable, was Bill Wilson. We didn't use the word sponsor in those days. 
But Bill said, Marty, nobody's going to listen to you. You're just a drunk. And they will consider that you are totally biased and that whatever you tell them is not necessarily true. And they're not going to accept it. And he said, I'm not just talking about professional groups. I'm talking about all kinds of people, the whole, a whole community. We gained that sponsorship from the scientists at Yale. I think it helped us immensely. It also helped us because it included a subsidy to get started. And I can tell you, in 1944, you couldn't have raised five cents for alcoholism. Somebody said some years later that she thought the reason it was so difficult to raise money for alcoholism is that you have to explain what you're raising it for and what you propose to do, and that is to change their minds. And nobody wants to change their minds. So why should they give you money to do it? You know that hasn't changed very much. It's very much the same today. And many of you who are working in this field, particularly if you're in a local voluntary agency, a local council, we changed our name in 1950 to council, because some of our board, which was growing by then, felt that the word committee was too ephemeral, that we wanted a name that sounded permanent because we intended to be permanent no matter what the problems and the hazards and the barriers and the hurdles were. And we have been permanent, but it has not been an easy hole. Let me just run across two or three things. I told you how the lack of any kind of support from special groups made it difficult to get an alcoholic well and how the lack of cooperation from the lay world in which that alcoholic lived also made it difficult for the alcoholic to get well. So we set out, and I think I was insane, and somebody should have shot me right then, to change public attitudes about alcoholism. And I may tell you I hadn't the faintest idea of what I was taking on, or I don't think I ever would have begun. At the end of ten years, there was a tiny little change. We were still having a, a really appalling time to keep afloat financially because our subsidy was for a limited time, and that time had gone. It was only for five years, and it was tiny. And fortunately, there were groups growing around the country of people who wanted to hear me speak and would pay for me to come and do it. At least, I mean, pay my fare so I could get there. And that's how I traveled. But nobody had very much money, so I didn't make back-and-forth trips. I went on the road for two months in the fall and three months in the spring and just circled and circled and circled and went and went and went until I worked my way back home. And it was exhausting. But some of the seeds that were scattered 
did take root and began to sprout. And I began to hope that maybe the goals of the National Council could be achieved. And those goals, as I said, were first to change public attitudes, second to eliminate the stigma that prevailed in those public attitudes, thirdly, to seek the establishment of at least information and referral centers in every community so that desperate people who didn't know where to turn would have a place to go to find out. And finally, to try to get provided, not to do it ourselves, adequate treatment facilities for the treatment of alcoholics. Now that, it, it, I think, is pretty familiar to most of you today. But those things were shocking to people in the 1940s. I remember when we decided, and I mean the men at, mail, at Yale with whom I worked, when we decided that we needed, well, we were talking about slogans. We were talking about condensing what we wanted people to learn into very simple statements that anyone could understand and that would be easy to remember and that we hoped would become part of the language. And I'm going to repeat them to you today because I agree with what Father Martin said last night. Repetition is the heart of education. You have to have repeti repetition. I can remember years later when we stopped putting what we called our three concepts on every piece of literature that came out of NCA's offices, that a board member from New Orleans came up to visit with us and he said, you know, you're making a terrible mistake. Those are trademarks. And just because you've been putting them on everything for whatever it was, 15 years, don't think that they have come that widely known and widely accepted. You have to go on repeating those perhaps for 50 years. I wasn't shocked this time because I had heard that the first time I went up to see the men at Yale. And I was very enthusiastic and very optimistic and very hopeful that once the American people in whom I deeply believed as a good, as a kind, as a caring people, I felt that was a characteristic of this country and the people who live in it, and I still do. I think they are the majority. And I felt once they learned the truth, they would take action. That's where I was wrong. Just hearing these things is not enough, because people quickly came to mouth the three concepts. And to say them easily, oh yes, alcoholism is a disease. But that did not change their behavior toward alcoholics. Because it was at this level instead of at this level. And the only way you change attitudes is at gut level. When you come to believe something, deep in your heart, deep in your consciousness, when you really believe it, 
then you can do something about it, but not until then. Let me give you those concepts once again. Alcoholism is a disease, and the alcoholic is a sick person. This was a radical statement, a shocking statement, an unbelievable statement to most people who heard it. And you know the sad thing is, it still is. In far too many areas and among far too many groups, groups that we have to have working with us if we're going to achieve our goals. Number two, equally revolutionary, equally unbelievable to large segments of the public. The alcoholic can be helped and is worth helping. That's the one they wouldn't buy. Even if you could help them, what would you have, they said. They were probably no good bums to begin with. Or they were chronic misfits. Or how can you rehabilitate somebody who never was habilitated in the first place? That one I understand. <laughs> because that is indeed the most difficult area in which we try to work. But even there, there's hope. And even in that difficult area, something can be done. We don't have to treat these people as human trash and try to sweep them out of town and keep them out of sight and starve the people that are trying to help them of funds adequate to do the job. Sure, they need more time, they need more facilities, they need longer-term care, and they may even need some place to live under supervision for the rest of their lives. I'm talking about the real bottom of the barrel. But we can't ignore them. They're human beings like the rest of us. And even though they don't look like them much, and they certainly don't talk that way. We've had some successes in those areas. And we know that a much larger proportion of the bottom of the barrel alcoholics could get well if we were able to set up an adequate chain of the kind of facilities they need in order to do that and to lead at least a sober life, and somewhat productive, it's sober. It would be a great tax load off our backs, but people don't think that way. They don't want to spend money in that area. The rate of success is not high enough. So let the poor drunks die, or spend years in prison, which many of them did, over and over and over again. They served a life sentence in installments. Finally, we said, this is a public health problem, and therefore a public responsibility, and you are the public. I don't care how many degrees you've got, primarily you're a citizen and a member of the public. That's the number one thing. What you became later 
doesn't negate that, doesn't make you any less a citizen, doesn't make you any less a human being who ought to be a caring human being. A human being who has some responsibility, at least, for his brothers and his sisters, or her brothers and her sisters. We cannot go on as a democracy unless we all accept that kind of responsibility. If we slough off great numbers of individuals and put them in pockets somewhere out of sight, put them under the rug, refuse to talk about them, refuse to take action about them, we, I think, are abdicating our citizenship. But even more, we are abdicating our own humanity. We are not what God intended us to be, which is caring people who love other people, and I had to learn early in my own sobriety that you can love people even if you don't like them. You have a right to choose those that you like. But I don't think you have a right to wipe everybody else but those few out and pretend that they're not human like you are and pretend that they don't need a caring community, for instance. A caring community that will do things to make their lives, or whatever is left of them, as bearable as possible. I'm still on the bottom of the barrel. You only have to move up a little way to people who still have jobs. They may have been on the shoot the shoots. They may have changed jobs a hundred times in the last few years. But they still can function to a certain extent. And those people really could save this country millions and billions of dollars if they could return to full, sober productivity. And they can. And that's one of the few areas in alcoholism where we have adequate figures, figures that can't be argued with because they're kept by the company and they know whether a man is returned to full productivity or no. They just know it. And they keep track of it. And in a case like that where someone still has a job, if their company has an alcoholism program, as more and more do today, I think there are over a thousand, they're not all equally good. But at least they exist. And where they do, those people at least have a chance to recover. But suppose you do send your alcoholic employee or your alcoholic family member or your alcoholic friend. Let me stop for a minute. The most recent figure that is being used at NIAAA is 10 million alcoholics. So there really can't be many people in this country that don't either have one somewhere in their family or at least know one. They know what alcoholism looks like. 
And his father Martin says, it's not that difficult to pick them out of the crowd and to diagnose them because the major symptom of their disease is their behavior. And that's visible to anybody that wants to look. Now, if they're employed, they want to look. And it isn't difficult to set up an alcoholism program and to find the alcoholics that work for that particular company. It can be done. And if their program is sound and they're handled right, they can be got to treatment. And yet just the other night I heard of great difficulty that one company in New York is having because they have they have been, let us say, a caring company. And they have taken seriously some of the things we're talking about in hiring minorities. And they have a high percentage of people who would otherwise be in the bottom of the barrel group. They have no families. They have no home to return to after treatment. They're living alone. They don't have too many friends except those with whom they drank. And when they finished with treatment, they go right back to the place where they came from and guess what happens? It's a drinking atmosphere. It's a drinking society. Their own subculture. And we don't have anything in New York that can solve that problem. We have detoxification facilities. We have short-term treatment facilities. But we have no long-term treatment facilities. And people like that need not just long-term treatment facilities, but long-term living facilities. How do you change the attitudes against the denial that is not limited to alcoholics themselves? Whole communities deny this problem. Whole corporations deny this problem. In that sense, they're all alcoholics. They deny it as successfully and as determinedly and for as long a time as the alcoholics themselves. And many of us know and say that denial is the major presenting symptom of alcoholism. So if you have a community that is denying that they have this problem, you have an alcoholic community or an alcoholic company, and this we still have to change. You can't change attitudes in one part of the country and not in another. We're not that divided. Oh, yes, we have different regions. People speak with different accents. And we have our own ways of doing things. If we're a Westerner or a Southerner or a Northerner or a Yankee or whatever. But finally, we are Americans. I should say primarily. And we're not going to get this job done 
if we pick and choose certain areas and then consider that we've got it under control, or if we pick and choose certain social or economic or other backgrounds, like, well, let's, let's look at this. Everyone knows today what AA is. Nobody knew what it was in 44. Very few people had ever heard of it. And I discovered that when I tried to explain what it was, people began looking at me as, and looking at the telephone as if they were going to reach for that phone and call for the man in the little white coat to come and take me away. Craziness, I was talking. They couldn't believe it, they couldn't accept it, and they didn't want to know anymore. We have a speaker later on this program, one of the pioneers in this field, who may use this same illustration, and I'm going to steal it from him. And you can give a good hefty laugh when he says it, because he may or may not. But I've heard him so many times talk to medical groups, and he has always ended up by telling them that he knows they've had no background and training in alcoholism, and they still don't and probably no experience whatsoever as a physician. But they can learn. And he said, I want to tell you the best way to learn. I'm going to borrow Willie Sutton's law. That's the best way to learn. In case you don't know about Willie Sutton, he was a bank robber. And he was asked once in an interview why he robbed banks. And he said, because that's where the money is. And my doctor friend added, if you want to learn about alcoholism, go where the alcoholics are. And you'll find a great many of them in AA groups talking about their own feelings and their own experience, and you'll learn. And there's no other quick way, or even relatively slow way, of really learning from the horse's mouth what alcoholism is, what it does to people, how they feel about it, what it takes to recover, because recovery is neither simple nor pleasant. Recovery is difficult. And I think every doctor, whatever his specialty is, because I don't care whether you're an ear, nose, and throat man, you're bound to get alcoholics coming to see you. And if you know enough, you'll spot them. It may be very easy to spot them. They may arrive loaded. Same thing is true for surgeons. The same thing is true for gynecologists and obstetricians, and any other specialty you want to name. And it's particularly true for psychiatrists, because so many alcoholics, as their drinking progresses, come to believe that they are stark, staring mad. And that means that the first person they go to, if they go to anyone, is usually somebody that deals with insanity. And that means a psychiatrist. So they see alcoholic patients. 
And if they don't know what alcoholism is and what to do about it, or where to send those patients to people who do know about it, that person is going to die. I can tell you that in my own case, in the last year of my drinking, I saw eight different psychiatrists because I was convinced that I was insane. They all assured me that I wasn't, but they weren't a bit interested in me as a patient. They said, there's nothing we, uh, we can't help you. You're not insane. I knew, came to know a lot of those people later. And they all told me the same thing. We couldn't, in all honesty and good conscience, take you on because we didn't know what to do with people like you. I'm talking about the 1930s, but don't think it's changed too much because it hasn't. There's no question at all that dramatic changes have occurred throughout the country. Drastic changes have occurred in public thinking. And among those people who make laws in state legislatures and in Congress. And many of those changes have come about because of a particular alcoholic, maybe themselves, who learned the hard way. That's the best learning there is. But it can be learned by others. I personally think a great deal of harm was done by over-enthusiastic AAs in their early days, making flat statements about the fact that no one could help an alcoholic but another alcoholic. That ruled out a very large proportion of people with degrees in any of the helping professions. And then they began to join AA, so then we had it made. They had learned the hard way, and they were also trained in the professional way. But they don't have to get into it themselves to learn. If they are willing to become familiar enough with Alcoholics Anonymous and its methods, and don't think they don't have methods, because they do. And let me remind you, particularly the psychiatrists in this audience, that AA created group therapy. There was no such thing before AA groups began to get alcoholics well. Certainly, when the professional people took it over, it had many changes. It's not identical at all. But the basic concept of groups of people with the same problem working together to solve their own problem. That is the basic area, more than area, it's the core of group therapy, whether it takes place in an AA meeting or in a psychiatric hospital or in an outpatient clinic or wherever it takes place. If that isn't enough to make you feel they're worth taking a look at, I really don't know how to persuade you. But if you're unwilling to do that, if you won't attend at least a few meetings and get a taste and a feel for what's happening in those meetings, 
Stay away from this field. You may do more harm than good. I'm not just recruiting anybody. Because I think a lot of people wouldn't be of any use whatsoever to alcoholics. Just because of the kind of people they are. There's a number one requirement. And funnily enough, it's not limited to alcoholics. My grandfather was a doctor, a greatly beloved doctor, in a wide area of northern Wisconsin, where he had a lot of very difficult patients. And I'm talking now about the 1870s and the 1880s. And he opened the first hospital that was paid for by insurance from the lumberjacks who were the majority of his patients. That's lumber country up there. And they had many accidents and they had many brawls and they were always coming in and they never had any money left. So he got together with a lot of them. They didn't have unions either then. And with the management people and he said, if you'll take 10 cents out of their paycheck every week and we'll put it in for medical treatment, then I can I can get a hospital going and I can take care of them. And that really was the first medical insurance, first hospital insurance. But he had a saying. He said, if you're going to care for people, you have to care for people. There's no group about whom that statement is more true than alcoholics. And there's another thing about alcoholics. They have antenna. Their feelings, they don't talk about them. You don't hear them from their lips. But their antenna is sticking way out, all around. And you can have a doctor, or a nurse, or a social worker, or a psychologist, or a clergyman, who in his heart or her heart is biased against alcoholics, but who has actually learned all there is to know and says all the right things at the right time, and the alcoholic doesn't hear a word. Because in that area, in that sense, alcoholics are like children and dogs. They don't hear your words. They feel your feelings. And I can remember when clinics first started to be established in the late 1940s. And a lot of them sprang up very quickly all over the country, modeled on the two original clinics, outpatient clinics, the Yale Plan clinics. And those clinics all had the same problem. They couldn't keep staff. The turnover was tremendous. And the search for qualified staff took much of their time. And they had kind of spotty treatment programs because of that. Well, what happened over and over again was highly qualified people were interested because this was a new area and they were curious about it and they saw no reason why they shouldn't get in on the ground floor. But they were prejudiced. 
They were contemptuous. They really did feel that alcoholics were an inferior subhuman group. And all of their learning didn't hide that fact from the alcoholic patients that went to them or was seen by them. And therefore, they were totally unsuccessful in helping alcoholics, and that is still true today. Talking about changing attitudes in general, and this is the overview, if we had a great big map of the United States, I think I would have to take a shotgun and go quite far back and shoot pellets at it, scattered pellets, which is what a shotgun does, to give you an idea of where there's been some progress. It's not whole areas. It's very rarely whole states. I can mention two only that I think have made tremendous progress and that are really making a dent in alcoholism in their states. One is our largest state, and that's California. And the other is a state that I think the average person would be surprised to know about, and that's Minnesota. Although you've just heard Dan, Dan Anderson, so you have some idea, and you're going to hear another Minnesotan later today, Vern Johnson. I think Minnesota has greater treatment facilities and more beds for alcoholics than any three states in the Union. I think they're ahead of even California in that sense. But California is still, let us say, a little more progressive than the recruiting of citizens to establish overall comprehensive community programs. They have some 60 community citizens' organizations in that state. And no other state has that many. You might think that New York State was, since the National Council is, is in New York State, but that's not true. California has moved far ahead of us, and I can tell you why. Because it had two dedicated individuals in that state, neither of them professionals, a husband and wife team, that I wish every state had a duplication of. If it could just split those two people up into 48 pieces, 50 pieces now, and put them in every state, we'd have progress in every state. And although they're not here to hear me, because as I say, they are neither of them professional people, their names are Tom and Catherine Pike, and if you ever hear those names, they are the two, in my opinion, leading individuals who have given everything they've got in the way of caring, in the way of working, in the way of action, in this field, and mostly naturally in the state where they live, which is California. But I could pick many people out who have done that. There's one thing about alcoholism. It has so many mysteries 
but it fascinates people. And if they've been touched with it in any way, in their own families, or among their own friends, or among their own employees, valuable people they, in the employee sense, they are likely to get bit with the bug, as I call it. They are likely to become captivated by alcoholism. It's a thrilling field to work in, despite all of its difficulties, and despite the fact that I have to admit that Drs. Haggard and Jelinek were correct when they told me it would take at least 50 years to change attitudes. And I was shocked. They said, you're not going to live to see it. That was 33 years ago. And they're right, I'm not going to live to see it. I know that because I know the state of public attitudes and private attitudes in many parts of the country today that have been untouched by anything we've done or anybody else has done to bring them the kind of knowledge that would make them want to get involved. We need, actually, for a population of six people that numbers 10 million, we need the involvement of practically everybody in whatever way they can contribute. And we're far from that. But Drs. Haggard and Jelinek told me that it was a known scientific fact that it took a new discovery or a new idea 50 years to become known and used by the public. Now, our problem is so difficult and so unpleasant to so many people I think that may even have been an understatement, although I didn't believe a word of it at the time, and set out on a dead run to prove them wrong. I've been running ever since, and I haven't proved them wrong. We have made great strides. We've made drastic changes in public opinion. We've made drastic changes in professional opinion, although less than among laymen. Still. We're persevering and we're getting there. Because people who get bit with this bug get dedicated. And you can't turn them off. And they're not going to stop for you or anybody else. I know many councils that wouldn't stop even though they ran out of money completely. They kept going anyway. And they were following, following absolutely to the letter, the experiences of the National Council. We ran out of money in our first ten years three or four times. By that time, there were two of us sharing one secretary. So we just didn't take any salary for four or five months. But the council went on. That's what I mean by dedication. And we have it in this field all over the place. We have tremendous dedication and tremendous caring. But we also have a responsibility to reach everyone we know in our social circles, our business circles, our professional circles, with what we know and why we care. And what can be done if they join us in knowing and caring. Now that's the job ahead. 
and I'll close with one story. It must have been in the very early 50s, and I had been out on the West Coast on one of my long-term trips, and I was going from the Monterey Peninsula to San Francisco. The chairman of the Monterey Peninsula Council, and remember this was in the, I think it was about 51, was the chairman of, he was a chaplain at Fort Ord, one of our biggest army bases. And he was chairman of the Commander's Council on Alcoholism. No other military establishment even mentioned the word. But they had a council within the military hierarchy. Not surprising, it was a chaplain. They are more likely to show their caring and to take risks no matter what the cost because that's how they care. And I was very depressed because money was tight, as it is today still, all over the country. Councils were dying of starvation because they couldn't get the funds to go on or to hire the staff they needed. People were killing themselves by working 17, 20 or more hours a day just to keep things going, whatever they were, what they were involved with. And it was kind of a bleak picture, and I couldn't see very much change in anybody's attitudes, except a few individuals scattered here and there. A few hundred individuals, but not enough. And I was kind of crying on his shoulder, and he said, Marty, I want to share something with you that I was told as a young man, and that has been one of the greatest helps to me in my life. Never measure your accomplishments by how far you are from your goal or how close you are to your goal. Always measure your accomplishments by how far you've come from where you started. And I think we all must do that to keep our courage up. We have come a long way from where we started as a nation. But don't let that make you complacent, because there are tremendous areas in this country that we haven't even touched. And it's not my generation that's going to do it. We who are the pioneers have really worn ourselves out in this. The greatest satisfaction that I have is to see the recruitment of young people into this field. Young doctors, young nurses, young social workers, young teachers, young clergymen, young businessmen. We need all of them. I even think it wouldn't hurt if we concentrated on them. Let them come to us for advice if they want it. But they don't even need to do that. There's enough going on now so they can go visit some of these things and see with their own eyes what's going on. We have a right to be proud of what has been accomplished, but we have no right to be complacent about it. We've got to still care. We've got to still fight stigma every inch of the way. And I've come to the conclusion that is our number one project, should be. Every single one of us.
fight stigma, fight stigma, fight stigma. Keep fighting stigma. That's what keeps alcoholics away from health. That's what keeps professionals from joining our ranks. That's what keeps important people in companies from lending us their strength and their power in the community. Stigma is our number one enemy, and don't ever forget it. And I don't expect to live to see its elimination, but I do expect to see that it's diminishing each year, and that's up to all of you. Good luck.